Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. They said it would never happen, but yes, Thea and I have been reunited once more for this podcast. Thea, what a joy it is to share the studio with you and your heavy metal haircut. <laughs> it's, a miracle, it's a miracle we can all fit in the studio with it, it given the, the wild size of it. Uh, Lucy Dallas objected to me referring to your heavy metal haircut, but I did, you did introduce the heavy metal motif. I did. There is a, a slight nod to the Ramones. Yeah, I like yeah. that, though. <laughs> good. Yeah, think, thank it's, you. It's, it's a good haircut. <laughs> Remember, if you want to rock out with the TLS, you need to do two things. Get a subscription by Googling TLS subscriptions and reviewing this podcast in a literary fashion if you can. This week, we'll be discussing the life work of Muriel Spark with another fine writer, Margaret Drabble. She's reviewing the centenary edition of Spark's collected novels. Keeping things British, we'll be talking Tolkien, in particular an exhibition about his life and work. Sam Graydon of This Shire will tell us more. And we have lots of pieces this week about the Middle Ages. History editor David Horsepool, who I like to think of as a medieval expert, will share the fruits of his considerable knowledge with us. Another year and another literary centenary to celebrate, this time that of Muriel Spark, who, had she not died in 2006, would have turned 100 this year. The best known and most widely praised of Spark's novels is undoubtedly The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, the story of a sexually and politically improper schoolteacher in 1930s Edinburgh who, declaring herself in her prime, selects six ten-year-old students to be her special girls her creme de la creme, she purrs, who receive the full force of her educative attentions. As the girls grow up and go their separate ways, or try to, things don't turn out that well. That was Spark's sixth novel, and her others are in a similarly off-kilter, provocative, fiercely imaginative vein. Spark had, it's fair to say, an interest in petty crime, in smuggling and stealing and cheating and forging. There's plenty of dissembling and jealousy and outright murderous violence in her books. The settings themselves are often rather shifty, especially in the earlier novels, such as The Ballad of Peckham Rye, which plunged the reader into the rough and ready working classes of South East London, and The Girls of Slender Means, set in a women-only boarding house in post-Second World War Kensington. 
That novella, written in 1963, was selected by Anthony Burgess in the 1980s to appear in his 99 novels, the best in English since 1939. But Spark had long been admired by other novelists, including Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene. And yet, on the whole, her work and legacy is not straightforward to assess, oh no. So, as a centenary edition of the novels is published in 22 volumes, edited by Alan Taylor, we have given that enviable task to the equally prolific novelist and critic Margaret Drabble, who joins us in the studio now. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. Um, So I suppose one way to start would be to put to you a question you pose yourself. You say Spark has unquestionably attained classic status, but what kind of a classic is she? Well, it is very difficult to answer that because the books are so quirky. They've not been much imitated um, and she isn't imitating many people. She's a one-off voice. It's a very idiosyncratic voice. It doesn't really fit anywhere. I mean, she's not really a feminist, but she's a woman writer writing about strong female characters. And she's not ideological, except that she's a a Catholic convert. But again, that plays very mysteriously in her work. And she's not a Catholic novelist in the obvious way that her admirers Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh were. So it's very hard to know exactly where to place her um, in terms of narrative style or ethical background. Has she been co-opted by feminist movement? Is, is there a sort of sense that people want her to be a patron saint of feminist writing, but she doesn't quite sort of match that? She doesn't fit at all. I mean, uh, because her characters behave very badly um, as feminists. I mean, they, they, they collaborate with the enemy quite a lot. And I, I think some women... Alice Smith, I think... Her, very much admire. Well, I know she admires her, and possibly she reads her as a feminist. Uh, but maybe she is a feminist in, in certain aspects of her life. I was talking about her with Nell Dunn last night, who greatly admires her. But we were wondering quite what the kind of moral centre of her work is, and it's really, really hard to define. But she's. Uh, you mentioned she um, had this famous conversion to Catholicism in the 1950s, um, which is quite an interesting story in itself. But what her reasons for doing that are quite illuminating and presumably they it was almost like she was trying to find a a, a total vision a total world in which to situate her her books but as you say there's no complete moral universe there either no and there's no continuity of it Mm. It, it, it's a very very strange conversion i mean i think that she converted and she probably wouldn't have disagreed with this because she was in a very very bad mental state she was um popping pills she was hallucinating she was paranoid and um she was saved from this by conversion according to her and she always said that it was conversion that made her into a novelist. So that we have to take her word for that. But sometimes the link isn't very easy to see. With Graham Greene, it's sort of obvious uh, because yeah. he writes about adultery, damnation and sin. But with Muriel Spark, the sinners are quite often the, the um, heroines or the heroes. And that, that is perplexing. And Catholicism as a subject feels a bit dating now doesn't it that you talk about green and war but the idea of catholicism as a grand subject for literature felt true at various points in in the history of the novel but does it does it feel the same now that does that almost make it seem rather quaint it does seem quaint it seems quirky rather than devout if you yeah. know what i mean it's i mean i have had friends who have been serious catholics my friend bernadine bishop who published three wonderful novels very late in life. She came from a Catholic family and her novels are Catholic but totally broad-minded, wonderful, forgiving and 
generous, but they are Catholic in spirit. But that is not the mainstream now at all. Yeah. So do you, do you have a, a favourite novel of hers or one that you think best encapsulates her style? I mean, perhaps the two things aren't the same there. Well, The Girls of Sendermeans is very good, but I'm not sure if I like it. I mean, it's, it's so strange that you admire these books, you enjoy reading them, and you're not quite sure how much you like them. I like one or two of the late ones very much. There's, I like Symposium, which is about a crazy, disastrous dinner party, and it's all told in narrative reverse. It sort of begins at the end, and it is just very funny. So there are sort of different reasons for liking them. Um, I don't like the early ones very much. They are gloomy. I mean, they're, they're set, as, you, as the introduction said, in a kind of gloomy backwater of bad behaviour. And they're depressing. And that partly was the post-war feeling of the 50s. Food was terrible. <laughs> Lodgings were terrible. Life was terrible. But, and the later ones have much more glamour in them. And I, that's more enjoyable. There's always the wild streak, though, even in the gloomy kind of... Uh, you know, the Ballad of Peckham Rye, yeah. or there's always this wild streak, almost like Bulgakovian rompishness. Yes, there is. I mean, she she did love things to go wrong and terrible things to happen. And she's not always quite clear about whether they're supernatural or whether they're just natural. I mean, yeah. is the character in the Ballad of Peckham Rye the devil, or is he just a very strange guy? Mm. And is he a convert who, what happens to him, he goes to Africa and comes back again? There's very, very strange kind of freelance storylines going all the time. She always said that um, she dominated her characters, but I do have a feeling at times that her characters just sort of make themselves up in a in a crazy way in her imagination. Uh, and what was the relationship with writing and mental health? Because there's a line you use which um, we put in the subject, which is a fine woman bashing triumphantly away at the typewriter that tormented her. Did she get peace and in writing or was it an outlet that she just had to use do you feel what was the relationship between that and her her mental state it gave her power and it gave her control and she was very keen on having control she was always sure she was right she wouldn't take editorial criticism really? she knew she was right and most of the time she was so it gave her a sense of power which relates to the feminism in a way, because she was a powerful woman. She, w she was in control of her life and she didn't suffer fools gladly and she was extremely successful. I think you get a sense of that, don't you, in the, in the titles of some of her books, The Public Image, The Driver's yep. Seat, Territorial Rights. Yep. That is absolutely yeah. true. And I did find The Driver's Seat very interesting because I'm not sure, I could never discover whether Muriel Spark herself could drive. <laughs> but she loves the phrase, the driver's seat, and not only in that novel. It's as though she wanted to be in the driver's seat. I think she may have driven because there's a reference to buying an early car. But whether she drove it or not, I don't know. That's pertinent to your own your own writing as well, though, I should point out, because you didn't you sort of never had a protagonist who could drive? Because you could, yeah, well drive. spotted. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's and true. It is true. And but as, after I passed my driving test, all my characters could drive. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have to invent weird excuses for why they weren't driving to a place, why they were on the train or the bus, and the car was in service or it had broken down or something. Because you didn't feel you could write about something you didn't know. I just never thought of it somehow. No, I, I would have felt a fraud describing driving without being able to drive. And of course now, I, I love, I'm sorry to say, I love driving. And so I, I quite like describing driving journeys. That's uh, what was it like reading the... There's 22 volumes here, there's lots of stories. What was the, the experience for you as a reader? Because I mean, presumably, had you read all of these before? No, no, I hadn't. So what was it like rereading and reading Muriel's Park for the first time? Did you? Was it enjoyable? Were there moments of, of longer where you thought, oh, 
I was never bored. Really? It was really interesting. I, I was sometimes annoyed or upset or perplexed is a good word. I was perplexed, but I was never bored. The only bit that I found myself bored in was in a late novel called The Takeover, which I had reviewed long, long, long ago for the New York Times, and I really hadn't liked it very much. And when I read it, I could see why I hadn't liked it. And there's an orgy towards the end, which goes on and on. And unlike most of her orgies, is boring. Yeah. There's nothing worse than a boring orgy. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't work at all on the page or off. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. <laughs> Does she have a style, Mark? If we're trying to, I was trying to think about that because I've only read a couple of her novels, but it's quite hard for me to to to, to su- summarise in my own mind what the actual style of the writing was because it's it's efficient. It feels to me it's not. She's described as arch, isn't she? Well, it is interesting. The words like pert and arch mm. do come. She's very epigrammatic. I think. I mean, yeah. she likes a well turned epigram, and and she doesn't get flowery. No. Um But she but she's got a very good use of language. It's controlled, I suppose. It, it's saying. very very mm. controlled. I mean, you could say artificial. Mm. Um, and in fact, the arch pert thing is a sort of female posturing. A man writer, a male writer, wouldn't mm. write like that. So, well, the, or would a male writer be called arch? Yeah, or would pert? not be called. Uh, that. And that's interesting because you might find that that sort yeah. of epigrammatic efficiency in a man mm. would be called epigrammatic efficiency, yeah. and in a woman might be called pert. It's possible. But though I think there is something gendered about her, the kind of jokes she makes. Also, she's very interested in fashion and is very funny about what people wear. There's a wonderful scene, I think it's in The Takeover, where these fake thieves turn up at a mansion with lots of paintings in Italy, and they're they're, they're admitted and served lunch. And one of the guys who's in this white silk suit spills some rigatoni red on on his... beautiful silk suit and that is just such a wonderfully funny scene I mean how the waiter tries to mop it all up and she's very very perceptive about clothing successes and embarrassments mm. do you think if you didn't uh, this is true I, I wonder of lots of novelists if you didn't know who it was and someone gave you a couple of these novels and you had to say whether it was a man or a woman writing would you know this was a woman? I think I would. Whereas with Iris Murdoch, you wouldn't necessarily. No, you wouldn't. But you probably would with someone like Hemingway, you would, obviously. In the same... Doris Lessing, you would. Couldn't possibly be that, a man. But is, yeah. is that for their style or for the things that they're writing? I, I think it's an interesting... I, I, I'd love to do it as an experiment, yeah. you know, take ten writers that someone's never read and see if they could pinpoint Because some of it will be style. That does feel like... I mean, these days you're not allowed to say necessarily there are differences, but there are gender differences in prose, aren't there? And... and yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I think it's mostly content, frankly. I, I really? think it's a, 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 the kind of material that people choose to be interested in, like clothes or babies, hunting, <laughs> war. I mean, you know, if, yeah. if you look at sort of Philip Roth, or there, there, there's a different agenda there altogether, and it's not wholly to do with the prose. No, that's interesting. Yeah. We should do an experiment at some point. I mean, yeah, it would be very, very interesting. I mean, I did mark some short stories. Um, I've done one or two short story competitions, and the first one, everything was submitted anonymously, and I sexed everyone right. I got them all right. Really? But the second one was undergraduates, very, very clever undergraduates, who were playing games, and I had no idea whether they were male or female, but they were writing a different kind of story, a sort of show-off kind of story, in which they were just being smart. Yeah. Whereas the uh, the other, the Bridport selection, which Kate Atkinson actually won for a section of a novel which hadn't been published, they they were proper serious writers, not, not showing off. So and it was easier to work out where they were coming from. And incidentally, that's how Muriel Spark 
got her break was was through winning a, a, a competition. She did like indeed. She she won the Observer Short Story Competition and um, and just carried on mm. from there. And I I remember that competition. I was only a child at the time, but I remember it, and I remember her winning the prize. And you um, just on a final note, because I think we'll have to leave it there. You you did meet her, so perhaps you could tell. About yes, that. yes. I probably met her once or twice at a party, but the occasion I remember most was when she invited my husband, Michael Holroyd, and me to lunch um, with Geordie Gregg, I think it was. Oh. Yes. And well, she, whatever happened to him? <laughs> whatever happened to him. And I think it was it was in some hotel in... Um, oh, I can remember the name of the hotel, if I have a moment. Durrance Hotel, I think it was, where she used to stay. And Penelope Jardine was there. And she was writing her book about Lucan, and she was so thrilled with her own ideas. And, she, and I thought, what a weird book. I mean, you know, I really don't want to read that. But when I read it, it is rather gripping. So, you know, she was, and she was in her 80s. And I think she wanted us to go and stay with her in Italy, but we never got round to it. And was oh. she charismatic? She was fascinating to listen to. I mean, she was tremendously chatty and sort of full of ideas. Yes. True to her yeah. name. Yeah, she was sparky. She was very sparky. How lovely. What a great pleasure it is talking to you about this, uh, Margaret. It's a great piece as well. And I think, I wonder how many people will have read a lot of Muriel. I wonder if she's one of these authors that people have read one or two. I wonder how many have read all 22 volumes. I mean, there are addicts. I mean, there are people who really love the entire earth, but most people have only read one or two. You're right. Yeah, great stuff. Margaret Jobble, thank you very much. Thank you. J.R.R. Tolkien is a familiar enough name. Do you know what the R's stand for, though? Ronald and Rule, apparently. Not sure that second one's actually a name. But his gravestone, as we learnt this week, bears another couple of names for Tolkien and his wife, Beren and Luthien. Those of us who have read The Lord of the Rings and even gasped the Silmarillion might recall that Beren is the first mortal to marry an elf. Tolkien, that pipe-smoking Gandalf of a figure in our imagination, is then a bit of a lovely old romantic as well. Sam Graydon, who is genuinely called Samwise in the office, has been to see a new exhibition at the Bodleian Library called Tolkien, Maker of Middle-earth, which seeks to connect the fantasy world with Tolkien's real life. It also includes watercolours and drawings by Tolkien himself, some of which were used to illustrate his books. In fact, I had a poster of Bilbo coming to the huts of the River Elves on my wall when I was growing up and now I know thanks to this article that it was by Tolkien himself. Sam's here to tell us what else we might learn about the man and his work. Samwise? Hello. You are occasionally called that? I am indeed, I, even by my family members. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Are you? Is that because you're like Samwise Gamgee from... I think it's a compliment. Yeah, he's a, nice, a, he's a yeah. nice character. I like him. Yeah. Uh, let's establish your credentials. What sort of Tolkien fan are you? Geek, super geek or something else? <laughs> I you think, can refute both of those. I think I think those Rebut. are the Rebut. basic. Sorry, <laughs> good lord. You will never <laughs> truly be able to refute <laughs> no, no, no. them. I think they are the only two options, really. If you're a Tolkien fan, the yeah. first entry is geek, geek. Mm. pretty much. And I am I'm at level one. You're level and, one. Yeah. Modest. Modest. Yeah. So, what what sort of artist was he? What sort of artist? Yeah, let's talk about the picture. I mean, when you you said was the most striking thing him as a as a as, a, as an artist. Do you think? I think yes. For for. The fact, first of all, that I, like you, didn't know that he was the illustrator yeah. to The Hobbit. So the cover is by Tolkien as well, that famous blue and green cover. Oh. You know, the slightly Japanese mountains yeah. and the road. That's Tolkien. And he, in fact, got that commission off the back of his illustrations for it. The publisher went, hang on, these are 
pretty good and do you want to do the cover um so they it was the most striking thing because they were so beautiful unexpectedly beautiful um but i think he was still an amateur i mean it was common in the schooling of the time that boys would you know learn how to draw yeah um and so his at least early sketches are basically they are the rudiments of the school system um and also he didn't really do it as a professional he and they part of what was so impressive was that there were streams of drawing sketches and doodles and sometimes you know fully mocked up landscapes for the lord of the rings or the hobbit or any of his other works. Did he do maps as well? He did. He did so many maps. Um, he, the Bodleian has 30 relating to the Lord of the Rings. And were the maps important? I, whenever you, and also, it's his legacy, isn't it? Whenever you read fantasy fiction or you pick it up, generally speaking, you'll open it and there'll be a mm. hand-drawn Indeed. map of, of some but I think that world. comes from Tolkien. That must come from I Tolkien. I think it comes from... Because it was so unexpected as a book. It really birthed that fantasy genre. What, the, is it the Hobbit, you think, or The Lord of the Rings? The Lord, the Lord of the Rings, I would think, more than The Hobbit, because The Hobbit was a children's story, and I think was seen as such. Still unusual, um, but very much a children's story, and then The Lord of the Rings was something else. But the maps were, in fact, the maps were incredibly important, um, as well as, you know, very beautiful objects. But he approached, the, he didn't write anything unless he had a map. So he would draw the map first, um, and then everything would fit into that like so much so that he and on the back of a menu at a college dinner he has um he sort of has flipped over in boredom you know listening to a speech or something and and started writing hobbit long measurements which is so the the measurements that hobbits use based on the length of a uh, I think the Hobbit toenail, and so there are so many nails in a foot, and then there are, you have so many, uh, no, in a toe, and then so many toes in a foot, and then it goes up to gate miles. It's, um, all, it's all his way of sort of keeping it real. Yeah, he said, I'd never make anyone go further than they can walk in a day. So he had to know how long hobbits who are half size go because he didn't want to, to they couldn't actually walk the distance he was making them do. Mm. So everything abides by these sort of very obsessive, realist laws. Um, Hobbit was a children's book and actually the TLS reviewed it which I should mention because we normally review books I got it wrong yep. historically, yep. historically. We, we got it wrong. C.S. Lewis though who was a contemporary and friend and friend it, uh, it's, it's a, a glowing dodgy, review yeah, from yeah. it's a bit of a dodgy commission that isn't it but anyway, C.S. Lewis said in a review uh, prediction is dangerous but the Hobbit may well prove a classic but he didn't then knock out Lord of the Rings the next year to cash in oh, on no. it did he no very much not he was because it was so unexpectedly successful, The Hobbit. It ran out in three months and they needed a second printing and they introduced colour illustrations into that one. Um, and, you know, and it wasn't just the TLS student. Everyone was saying, this is really good. And it went over to America and did as well there. Um, so the publisher was keen for him to do a sequel and a sequel to The Hobbit, another children's story, um, which he started to write. I think it was called The Magic Ring. Um but it took him 12 years to write. Um, and he was, you know, doing his academic stuff, so he was writing at night and things. But, you know, the Second World War started and finished in the time 
it took him to write The Lord of the Rings. Really? Um, and what point did he say, um, this is no longer a children's book, this is a... Is Lord of the Rings a children's book? No, I wouldn't... I think nobody really saw it as such when he delivered it. Um, I don't think he saw it as a, a children's book. And his initial commissioning editor had, by that point, grown old enough to be able to read it as an adult, because yes, there's that indeed. excellent story of, of... it Was was it the son of... Yeah, the son of Stanley Unwin, of, of the publishing house. Um, he, he commissioned his son, who's ten, to read The Hobbit and do a... <laughs> do a feasibility report on the, how well it would be, you know, go down. Um, and he sort of gave it a tick and said, yeah, that's good. Um, and so it got published. And also, the, it was George Allen and Unwin. They had, they published like one or two fiction books before, and they had never published children's thing. And one of his mates just said, oh, you should send it to George Allen and Unwin. And then it was accepted, which would never, it's just completely mad. So it's, they're almost their first ever children's book yeah. was The Hobbit. Yeah, it was The Hobbit, and off the back of his 10-year-old son. And then he, Raymond Unwin, the son, grew up and actually then worked for George Allen and Unwin. And he, after 12 years, I mean, he got constant reminders, Tolkien, but after 12 <laughs> years, he sort of just went, any chance of the manuscript, <laughs> you know, John? Um, and and he got the manuscript from Tolkien and sort of presented it to his father. Um, and did they know that was... I mean, is it a classic? It is a classic, isn't it, by any yeah. standards? Yeah. I've read it m multiple times. Yeah. Um, the Elvish comes in this exhibition, the sort of runes and the Elvish draw, uh, writing. Where do we stand? Thea, where are you on this? Are you a fan? Have you read Lord of the Rings? I have. Um, I read it... Um, I don't know how old I was, 10 or did something? Did you like it? Uh, no. Is it a boy's book? I I read it because my dad loved it and told me I would love it. Yeah. And so maybe my not loving it was... I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it enough, but I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't completely swept away. But yeah. maybe that's something wrong with me. Well, I don't know, because I think... <laughs> that, when I re I reread it relatively recently, and there are long moments yeah. of, of, of longers where nothing very much happens. And I, the yeah, Elvish I, as well, it, it yeah. sort of dragged. Yeah, I remember it being boring, <laughs> and I read it as a child, but I... I remember it being boring, but I remember it being compelling enough yeah. to get past the kind of turgidness. So how important was the Elvish? Because the famous thing about the Lord of the Rings is you always skip the poetry. <laughs> you always, yes. Because, <laughs> you always skip the poetry. But you have to skip the poetry. Generally speaking, with all novels, when they're trying to do poetry, yeah. uh, I, I remember the A.S. by um, Possession. I, was, I did a Tolkien on that, actually, mm. reading it, which may not be the correct thing to do. But he, the Elvish writing and the mythology and the accuracy and all of that was very important to him as a philology man. Yeah, it was, in fact, it is the most important thing in Tolkien's legendarium, as it's called, um, for the fact that he'd been doing that for... So the Fellowship of the Ring, where Elvish is first published, and you first see it in print, comes out in 1954 and there's evidence of him starting to write Elvish languages in 1911. Which he made up. Yeah, so which he, just, he made it. He just started, so this was, he was obsessed with language, and I mean, it was his profession. So what he, is yeah. it rooted in? Is it so, Indo-European? Um, Finnish. Finnish? Um, oh, I knew that. But yeah. the, early on it's rooted in Finnish, and then he sort of adds and tacks on different bits, and it gets diluted a bit, but he sort of discovered Finnish, and was like, this is excellent. <laughs> I, and I didn't know this when I went. It's not just Elvish. There are like 12 
like elvish languages, um, which are all it's a regional elvish re- language. Yeah, relate and and like <laughs> proto really, right. Yeah, like yeah. proto Indo European. You have the original elvish language. Ur uh, elvish. Ur elvish. I think it's I don't. It's called uh, Valarin. It's the language of the Valar, the the gods, mm. um, who teach the elves how to speak it. And then from there, like proto Indo European, it branches off and in a way that is completely consistent with grammatical rules. So you would be able to see, as you know, you can see with Spanish and Italian, that they are vaguely the same word. You can see that in his branches of the language tree. And you can you can sort of translate one Elmish language to another, because it all all consists by rules. How, is there any record of how he f- would have felt that actually most people love this story because it is a classic quest story, uh, of heroism with a more or less happy ending and don't care an awful lot for the elvish philology. Do you reckon that would have bothered him or was he doing it for his own interest and think, the book kind of came secondarily? Well, the book definitely did come secondarily. He sort of realised that he needed people to speak these made-up languages. He sort of said that the stories came as, you know, a way to incorporate the languages um, rather than the other way around. Um but I don't think I don't necessarily think he'd be disappointed. He was incredibly humbled by the fact that anybody liked it. He tried. I think he did. In fact, answered every piece of fan mail he had by hand. And some of the fan mail, he had some very high caliber fans. Very, very high caliber fans. Every, almost everybody who was anybody wrote. Um, you had the Queen. The, name. the Queen of Denmark wrote to him. Terence Pratchett, who was nineteen, <laughs> wrote. Um, Arthur Ransom of Swallows and Amazons, and then Auden. Auden loved it. Auden, Auden was that given a yeah. Me. Auden was given a proof copy hmm. um, when it was called the War of the Ring, and he he said, uh, you know, he sent a very glowing letter, and I think he was concerned about the fact that um, there weren't enough animals in it, there weren't enough pets, <laughs> and he he sort of went, oh, why aren't you know you talk so nicely about trees and but why aren't there any pets? And also, what answer? happens to Radagast? Radagast the Brown. Yeah, he wanted to know. Auden was he really wanted to know what happened to Radagast? He said that you quote in the piece. Auden wrote that as you know, the War of the Ring is one of the very few books I shall keep rereading all my life, and I kind of understand that. I've I've read it more than once. There's sort of moments where you feel a bit low, yeah, and, and you, you happily tuck into the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, um, I wonder what he would have made of the films. And you know, Amazon have just paid a billion know, dollars yeah, to, found do, out today, to do the TV series. What are you made of the? the films I mean I, if he was humbled by the books the films are kind of extraordinary reception yeah. I imagine he would have been very involved in their making I should imagine so I know the Tolkien estate are doing that TV adaptation and they're involved in that but I don't I think he yeah he would have been very involved but I think he also just would have been pleased he was disappointed to find in the fan mail that people would uh, get the runes wrong because he would receive letters in runes and <laughs> elvish and things but I don't think he felt it was an affront Again, he was just pleased that people were involved in the stories. And, I, you know, that is part of the reason he actually... He was a very giving man, generally. So the, the Hobbit, as everyone knows, really, that he started as a story for his children. But he was always doing that. He was always sort of giving to his children and people who asked, you know, the, all of the fan mail he answered and things. Is there, is there another author who's created an entire genre in that way? I don't expect you to have an answer. I was just <laughs> thinking about that now, because... Without The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, that entire... If you, I was in Foyle's bookshop today, wandering around, and I walked... The only reason I know about maps, I picked up a book because I was wandering through the fantasy fiction, which I'm not really interested in, but... And there were shelves and shelves and shelves, and I picked up one of the books, happened to be ours, and I turned the first page, and there was a strange map 
drawn in that sort of slightly pained calligraphy style. Well, and that's and again, that is Tolkien because that wasn't Tolkien doing pain calligraphy, which all those fantasy maps are based on. That was how Tolkien drew. That was his style. His handwriting is like that. You see the letters he writes, and it is he's not making it up. That's just that is Tolkien that they're copying. So it definitely comes all, all from him. I wonder what the um, Philip Pullman doesn't like him. Right. Uh, although Philip Pullman arguably wouldn't have written the books he's written without Tolkien. Oh, yeah. But he says something like there is more psychological honesty in half a page of Middlemarch than there is in the work of Tolkien. And his view is, but if you say to him, I've interviewed him and said, you know, how much do you owe Tolkien? He doesn't really want to accept that as a predecessor. He regards his predecessors as the realist Victorian novelists. It's He happens to write a world in which there are demons and, and, and extravagant, ebullient things happen outside of the realist world, but he doesn't regard Tolkien as a, as a forefather. But, you know, uh, Harry Potter doesn't exist without Tolkien. Oh, well, no, he actually lifts quite a lot of Tolkien, yeah. the Black Riders and things like that. But I don't know... Um, is he, is, I guess I'm getting it. Do people look down on him now? Is he, is he seen as a bit of a British eccentric... He might be seen as... I, I think within literary circles, he doesn't fit the psychological realism. Um, but, uh, again, that's just because he wasn't trying to write that, I don't think. He saw himself as writing mythology and creating a mythology for England. Um, and via his profession, um, he got very interested in really ancient mythology and sort of bemoan the fact that the Norman Conquest had wiped it out and then even bemoan the fact that the Danes had wiped out so, and he was so and he was like, well, isn't, I don't know if there was actually anything you're really looking for Tolkien but he was convinced that he wanted to supply what was missing in the stories that have come down to us from mythology so he sort of backward engineered um, situations and characters that fed into the remaining myths or the gaps in the myths that we have from really old English Amazing stuff, and, and you and you. This exhibition's good. It's a very good exhibition. It made me like him a lot more. I thought he would be a pedant, and for, <laughs> from the fact that you know the writing is occasionally turgid, and there are a lot of maps, and there are a lot of songs and things, but he was just such a lovely man. Uh, the, I didn't get to write it, but his biography is extraordinary. Um, so his father died when he was four, while. His mother and his brother and he were on holiday in England. His mother then died when he was 12, and was, he was put into the care of a Catholic priest with his brother, who put him under the care of his aunt, who didn't like them, so they got put into a boarding house, where he fell in love with his wife, who was also an orphan, and then the priest found out and said, you can't have a relationship with this woman until you're 21, and you cannot see her or speak to her or write to her. So he accepted this and didn't write or speak to her for three years. He then, as soon as he turned 21, so on the eve of his 21st birthday, wrote a letter asking her to marry him. And then she said, I'm engaged to someone else. Oh! So he went to Cheltenham where she was staying, and that day she agreed to marry him. But he's just such a romantic man. And the intensity of that story brings us full circle to the... the, the the beginning, your introduction, where, buried where you point buried out that they're buried, yeah, buried yeah. together. Buried together. What a lovely story. It's called Maker of Middle Earth. It's at the Bodleian until October the 28th in Oxford. Samwise, Graydon, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank you. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. From Middle-earth to the Middle Ages, the medieval period of history seems to combine both the pleasures of familiarity and the exoticism of distance. This week, Mary Wellesley has reviewed a book called Medieval Bodies, which happily celebrates the era's oddity. It has a section apparently called Anal Arts and the recesses of the medieval mind. Those recesses were seldom, it must be said, feminist. Menstruating women were thought to turn bronze objects black, wither crops and drive animals mad, apparently. And when menstruating women were not doing all of that, their hairs might be planted to grow a long, stout serpent. Thankfully, the human race still managed to avoid superstition enough to sustain itself through procreation, possibly because its contraceptive measures were less than failsafe. The testicles of a weasel were held to be prophylactic, or, in their absence, carrying the womb of a goat that has never had offspring against your bare flesh was believed to do the same job as I'm sure in practice it did. Wellesley offers a welter of memorable historical details, while Claudia Gold argues for a figure whom history perversely seems keen to forget, Henry II. It is those who surround him that seem far more recognisable today, apparently, like Thomas Beckett, Eleanor of Aquitaine, or his sons Richard the Lionheart and Bad King John. And yet Henry was apparently rather outstanding and fairly modern, a secular, forward-looking figure who appreciated the value of good public relations. 
His crisis management around the murder of turbulent Thomas Beckett was exemplary, for example. According to Gold, he had not only rehabilitated himself, he put on an ostentatious display of penance, allowing himself to be flogged by the monks of Canterbury, after which contemporaries believed Thomas forgave him, but had harnessed the booming Beckett miracle industry for his own ends. He might even have made a go of Brexit. All of this history is European, of course. David Abalafia this week has turned his mind to an Eastern influence in the Mediterranean. In his review of Christopher Picard's Sea of Caliphs, he records the challenge to the image of medieval Muslims as landlubbers. Noting that after the 9th century, Muslim fleets dominated the southern lengths of the Mediterranean. Thereafter, there was squabbling and conflict and arguments about relationships within the Islamic world and between East and West. Some things in that sense remain familiar. Now, who could possibly tell us about all of this history? <laughs> Not me. Not you, Thea. David Horsepool, <laughs> of course, who's here to bring it all together without once using the phrase, it's like a real life Game of Thrones. David, do you accept that challenge? I do, I do. Hello, have, have, you ever, have you ever used the phrase, it's like a real... No, Game I've never watched Game of Thrones. No. Is that a, thing? Is that I, a line that uh, people oh, use? If you, yes. Historical fiction and historical um, sort of popular history yeah. about anyone where there's kings where people die. Oh, you mean in the, the blurbs? The, and yeah, the it's like a real yes. life Game of Thrones. <laughs> It sells. It sells. <laughs> uh, what's the medieval? We don't know. You, I, you can't answer that question, can you? I'm, I'm not afraid ready? not. I've seen where it, where it was filmed, where it is filmed. Where's that? Uh, in Belfast. But oh. uh, it's just in a big car park in Belfast, mostly. We're in, we're Sorry. In Many interesting things in car parks. Absolutely. Are you going to care to... Richard the Third, I think oh. Thea's thinking of. Uh, which referring of course, to David Horsepool's book. book. Richard the Third, <laughs> which, which, which we've all read, haven't we? Yes. Uh, right. Well, let's not talk about your book, David. Let's talk about Henry the uh, Second. Yes. The first Plantagenet, I believe. What, Correct. Is he not? Is he overlooked? Do you buy the Claudia Gold argument that we people will think of all sorts of other people in the era, but not him? Yeah, to some extent, I do buy that argument. I think that she's right that. Uh, people like Thomas Beckett and Richard the Lionheart and even Bad King John are um, thought about more or they've occupied more of a place in the public consciousness and I mean that's so that's one reason why he's possibly forgotten he's just overshadowed um, and then I was thinking about the other reasons that he might be overshadowed in or, or forgotten and one of them I think is that he's not quite the classic idea of a medieval king he's not into chivalry and pageantry and so on, like Richard the Lionheart, his yeah. older son, who inherited, or he's not debauched and cruel enough to sort of occupy the place that King John does in the popular imagination. So he falls somewhere in between those two. And he was also a lot more competent than either of his immediate Competent isn't, is necessarily not that interesting, is it? It doesn't make you famous, being competent. No. He, did, he, did, he did amass the, the most territories of any, any king. Well, he's basically started out with them he inherited them all um so he well the only thing that he amassed was by marriage was mar by marrying eleanor of aquitaine and he got half of france basically yeah mm. he got the other bit of the, the large portion of france that he didn't already have through having normandy um so yeah they had this enormous empire um what do you do with informal. it what, what are his legacies then because you know is he a great lawmaker yeah i mean his he, I mean, his legacies that may be another reason why he's not a sort of popular figure of, of, of uh, renown is that his, maybe his biggest legacy is a, as a founder of the common law. Um, and that's not a very exciting legacy, but it's incredibly important that he spread 
justice th uh, throughout the land in a kind of administering it uh, kind of sense. And he introduced more jury trial, not in criminal trials, um, but more in civil disputes, which was obviously incredibly important and, and led to criminal activity anyway, the disputes over land holding and so on. So, I mean, it was a very, you know, very important way of keeping the peace. Um, and another thing that he's very important for is how rich he left the country relative to the state in which he found it. And one of the best ways you can illustrate that is by the fact that Richard the Lionheart was able to not only go off on crusade and fight a lot of wars when he came home from crusade against one of his fellow crusaders, Philip Augustus, but they were also able to pay his enormous ransom when he managed to get himself captured. And it's been calculated that that ransom would, in today's terms, be around two billion quid. Two billion? Yeah. And there, there was um, a tax that went onto people's movable property, I think it was, or rents, of 25%, which you know may not sound much to a modern uh, ear. We, wouldn't we all love a 25% tax? But in medieval terms, it's just... And in, until... Uh, a much more modern era it was just an enormous amount of money to be able to collect and basically no one else could could do that in Europe and I suppose everybody knew that which is why the ransom demanded was so absolutely extraordinary and yet on, on a final note before we move on to, to bodies um, <laughs> he he everything was lost very very quickly but all the land all the money was squandered yes. by his well his all sons. the land all the land started um, Richard the Lionheart held on to a lot of the land and got some back um John. King John oh. lost it all, and so that that part of his legacy went. And John gets the credit for the Mag well, not the credit, but he's there for Magna he's Carta. He's there for Magna Carta. I mean, which partly the birth of it. by imposing Henry's reforms so much, and he had nowhere else to impose them. He had to concentrate them domestic, completely domestically. That's what really made the pip squeak and and made Magna Carta possible. But there's one other legacy that you can think about with um, Henry II, which is the Plantagenets themselves. Richard III, who you happily mentioned earlier, is thought of often said to be the last Plantagenet. So that's right into the 15th century. But actually, you could argue that Plantage there's Plantagenet blood going much further than that. Um, you know, Henry VII married a Plantagenet. So Henry VIII's a Plantagenet. So the, the yeah. uh, Tudors and Stuarts had Plantagenet blood. And it, it, it goes on, you know, right up to, to the present day, really. Um, you can... You can trace what, a connection. What, really? Yes. Isn't Danny but, Dyer a Plantagenet? Well, everyone's a Plantagenet. <laughs> but I mean, have you, even, made, have you just made that up? Even, even the so Queen. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly willing to believe that Danny Dyer well, is, a, is a naughty Plantagenet. Well, there is. There's a, every time you watch one of those uh, "Who do you think you are?" things, yeah. that, uh, people always turn out to be related to Edward III, um, but because he had so many children. Um, but the Queen does have a connection back to yeah. to the Plantagenets. Well, talk, well talking of procreation which we kind of are there uh, medieval bodies it sounds a lot of fun this book uh, yes. now how hopelessly unsophisticated were those medieval types believing all sorts of um strange well they were definitely extremely unsophisticated and the things that you read out but i think the first thing to say about that is that i can't believe that many more medieval people believe that than than we do or found that any less bizarre that the really? book from which most of those things are taken, which I think is the, uh, it's the Secrets of Women uh, on the Secrets of Women, written by people who famously know most about monks. women, celibate monks. Yes, <laughs> um, 
and that he the monk who wrote it uh people don't know who it is who wrote that book but uh the monk who wrote it based a lot of it on aristotle so we can also blame the greeks and of course Yes, medieval people themselves were not under any um, misapprehensions so about got, how you got pregnant or how you didn't. But there's an argument, we'll come to Islamic Middle Ages shortly, but there is an argument that the world of England in the 13th century was less sophisticated than the world of Constantinople. Certainly than, it would have been than Constantinople. I should think that's probably true. I mean, Constantinople was probably the most sophisticated place um, in the Western world, I wouldn't kind of want to speak about the rest of the world because I don't know about it but uh, yes I'm sure that's true and and similarly places like Baghdad were pretty sophisticated too and had been for quite some time. So were, were, were we sort of boorish? Um, well there's, a, there's still a lot of sophistication to, to be found I mean you only need to look at some of the buildings that yeah. you know if we look we look out of our office on the south bank of the Thames and we look at a 950 year old building in uh, the Tower of London which is still standing. If you look at even something like the Houses of Parliament, those are based on medieval Westminster uh, Hall models. Is still medieval. Westminster Hall is medieval. Think of somewhere like Lincoln Cathedral, which was, if you're just concentrating on English, as it were, achievement, Lincoln Cathedral was the tallest building in the world for hundreds of years, the, the spire of Lincoln, and is still an amazingly impressive building today. And, you know, I don't suppose the mini shard where we're sitting or even the shard itself will possibly last 900 years it seems unlikely so you know i think we kind of belittle them at our peril a bit even the 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 english type medieval let alone more sophisticated ones um let's talk about david abelafia talks about the islamic middle ages and the muslims in the mediterranean um he's, he's reviewing a book by christopher picard mm. is that important why is that book important is there a is this is, is that a relook at an area that has been established history that's being challenged yes well i think what what's important about it the the idea of studying the mediterranean as a historical entity kind of begins as he says with a french historian fernand bordel early, early in the 20th century and um stems from there and and in in taking the whole mediterranean as a kind of entity one thing that he appears to not have left out but have played down is the Muslim or Islamic um, contribution and the different stories that can be told if you look at it from that point of view. So I think what Picard's book does is to synthesise a lot of scholarship and study that's been going into this um, area of history for quite a long time. So yeah, it is, it's a pretty important book and it's quite an ambitious book. To, it sort of tells the story from the other side. Because the, the presumption is always that it was it's it's an Italian or a Roman and a French domain and, and that's right I think that well that's what we probably think but I imagine if yeah certainly thinks that I would yes I mean, she, thinks it, in, yeah. in, <laughs> she thinks everywhere she thinks an Italian domain <laughs> uh, but for those of us with more um, outward looking <laughs> casts of mind uh, you can you know if you look at it from Baghdad or from Cairo it looks very different um, and of course you know you don't have to stick in places which have remained Muslim to this day you can actually also think about it from the Spanish angle you know Spain was um, Andalusia was a was a, a Muslim kingdom so um, we're gonna we have, we're gonna have to finish soon but we do want to test you on your literature David Horsepool what with you yes, being I'm a historian looking forward to that so Daniel Donahue <laughs> has reviewed Laura Ash's first volume of Oxford English Literary History 
1000 to 1350, which to my untutored boorish eye seems to stop just when literature's getting good, because that's before Chaucer. Yeah. This itself is a work of, of revision. She's sort of, Laura Ash has yes, delineated that. a whole new I period. Think, period. Yeah. I think that's, that's her plan, isn't it? Is um, there a period, 1000 to 1350, that's sort of recognisable? Well, it, it, it's not one I had kind of come across before, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I thought it was worth mentioning um, this review, which is a really fascinating review. Uh, it kind of takes issue with, with the book quite a lot, Daniel Donoghue's review, while admiring it greatly. Um, and one thing he points about the, out about the periodization idea is that the conquest that is mentioned in her subtitle, we always think conquest means 1066, but he says, well, by starting in 1000, you can see the conquest as 1016 being the conquest of Canut. King Canut, exactly. Uh, so that makes it more interesting. We can bring in Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian influences. Um, and I think that's a fascinating thing. As for the kind of qualities of the stuff um, on a fresh, I think you know better than I do. But I, I, I did, you know, I did. Gawain and the Green Knight is well, about, yeah. I... But if you think of Gawain, I mean, one of the difficulties we have is that the language that they're written in, and yeah. it's quite difficult to follow. If you think of them in more in more modern English, I mean, it's it's not a million miles from from Tolkien as you were discussing earlier. It's it's the kind of seabed of all that. Sort it's of the medieval stuff. romance and it's Sir Orfeo yeah. and, and all of that. And the the kind of historical work at the time which was also kind of quite a lot of fictional stuff like Geoffrey of Monmouth um I was having mm. another look at that I mean I had to sort of read some of him when I was an undergraduate but I'd forgotten that he's one of those one of the first authors who does that brilliant thing of pretending to have found a book which he is now translating for your benefit I found an interesting book about King Arthur and all uh, the history modern yeah so it's very that's a very kind of postmodern view. Do you think history? I mean, is it distorting the way historians fix on periods? Because to a certain extent, it's always arbitrary, isn't it? What with time, yeah. time being onward rushing, and then to start saying it, there is a period of ten hundred to thirteen fifty, or even the Middle Ages, it's fairly well, it, it's arbitrary. It's, it's arbitrary when we put them at the end of of centuries or in the middle of centuries, isn't it? But I think we can all recognise periods where there seems to be a break between sort of yesterday and today kind of thing that we can tell we're entering a new so era. So 1066 tell, would be a would yeah, have been and, a moment. and we can tell at the end of the Second World War that something's changed. We can probably tell right now that, you know, that Brexit will in future be, the vote to leave the EU will in future be seen as a new a point in, yeah, a new point in British history. Um. Will, or will we? <laughs> well, or or of course not. Or, or, just a, or just a massive fudge for the next six or seven years well, that could, slowly reverses itself. Well, I, I talk about history, not the future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we better go. Favorite medieval figure? Anyone you should want to lob in our direction? I feel like this should be a regular question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, everyone should have a figure. favorite. Medieval that should be figure. a test, shouldn't it? If you're well, if mine, you can, yeah. if you're interested, <laughs> could be uh, William the Marshal. Um, who 12th century knight, greatest knight in Christendom he was known as. He's a really classic medieval figure. He was a, a, a chivalrous knight who became an advisor to princes and kings. But he's also quite a kind of modern uh, figure in that he started off penniless. He rose by his own bootstraps. And he also had a book written about him. He was the sort of first celebrity biography and actually what made him famous in the first place was that he was the equivalent of a kind of sports star yeah. he was a fantastic tournament fighter Jouster. yeah so he was the great great man for that you should um, write a book about him 
there are, there are good books about him already, including his biography written just after he died, which is probably the best book to read about him. There we go. William the Marshal. William the Marshal. And Pembroke Castle you can visit as I drag my kids around there every summer, I'm sure. which is his lovely home. I'm sure they enjoy it. <laughs> yes. uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to the great David Horsepool, Samwise Graydon and Margaret Drabble. Do make sure you are a TLS reader. Find this week's paper so you are not mocked for the paucity of your medieval knowledge. This week there's also a special podcast as fiction editor and junketeer Toby Lishtig interviews Tim Winton about his new novel. Check that out and we'll be back next week as well discussing american politics and literature in some form or other do join us until then from thea and from me deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.